Whitney Houston is widely regarded as one of the great vocalists of our time, maybe of one of the greatest of all time. Her rendition of I Will Always Love You is perhaps the single greatest vocal performance I have ever heard. She was discovered when she was just 19 years old singing backup for her mom in a nightclub. Clive Davis, the famous music producer, just happened to be there that night and in the middle of the show her mother had Whitney to sing the lead on the greatest love of all. Clive Davis was blown away. Whitney Houston's career skyrocketed. Before long, she had wealth, she had fame, she had the world by the tail. But those who know her say there was two Whitney Houstons. There was the, the pop princess icon, as People Magazine puts it, the queen of pop music. And then there was the ordinary girl from New Jersey who internalized all the pressure to be perfect. One friend put it this way, someone may look good on the outside, sturdy and strong, but on the inside, you had someone who had insecurities and family issues and emotional, personal issues and struggles. There has to be some outlet for her. It became drugs. She began taking drugs to deal with the pain. That led to even more drug use. When the end was near, Whitney's mom says she went into Whitney's house one day only to see spray painted on the wall these big glaring eyes and other creepy faces. Her mom put it this way. She said there were evil eyes staring out like a threat. And then her mom says, I went into another room where there was a large framed picture of Whitney, her husband, and her child in which Whitney had cut out her own face. Not long after that, she was found dead, drowned in her bathtub while using cocaine. She had so much to live for and was such a gift to the world. But because she wasn't able to deal with her personal issues, at age 48, they undid her. It's a really sad story. But the truth is, in one way or another, to one degree or another, we are all Whitney Houston. By which I mean, each one of us has one or more deep personal issues which hold us back which cause a lot of pain in our life, and if left unaddressed, could end up being our undoing as well. So today, let's talk about that. What is your greatest personal issue? The thing that keeps holding you back. And what does the Bible say that can help us with that. Let's begin with a prayer. 
God, as we just sang, we all come before you with our brokenness. Yes, we have strengths. Yes, we have successes, but none of us is completely whole. So today, we come to you hoping for insight, hoping for wisdom from your holy word. Give us something today that we can take away and apply, something that can help us in very practical ways. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One day a woman was walking along a beach when she happened to notice a teapot half buried in the sand. She thought to herself, could it be? So she picked up the teapot, dusted off the sand, and poof, a genie popped out of it. The woman said, does this mean I get three wishes? The genie said, no, due to COVID and shortages and supply chain issues. And excess demand, we are now granting people only one wish. You get one wish, so make it a good one. She thought for a second. And then she pulled a map out of her pocket, pointed to the Middle East and said, Janie, my wish is that there will be peace in the Middle East, that all of these nations will be at peace with one another. The genie shook his head and said, good grief, lady. He said, I'm good, but I'm not that good. Those people, those nations have been at war with each other for thousands of years. Sorry, no can do. Pick something else. All right, she said. She thought about it for a second. Then she said, I'm single, and I'm looking for the right man. Jeannie, my wish is that you will bring me the perfect man that you will bring me a man who is kind and gentle, who will help with the cooking and the cleaning and, and taking care of the kids, who doesn't sit on the couch all day and just watch sports. That's my wish, Jeannie. The genie sighed deeply, then said, let me see that stupid map again. <laughs> the point of the story being there is no such thing as a perfect man or a perfect woman. We all have our flaws. Even great Bible heroes had their flaws. Samson is a prime example. In fact, you might say that Samson is the biblical version of Whitney Houston, by which I mean he too was someone who was born with great promise, with great gifts. In his case, it was physical acumen. He was destined to be a great warrior. He had almost superhuman strength. God raised him up to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. The neighboring Philistines were regularly conducting raids into Israel, seizing crops, seizing livestock, and making the Israelites miserable. God raised up Samson to be their great deliverer. He had so much promise, but Samson had a problem. He had an anger management problem. When Samson would be provoked by something, 
he would spin out of control and end up doing all kinds of destructive things. Overkill, I guess you would say, that would then blow back on the Israelites. He wasn't helping them. He was hurting them again and again and again. In the story of Samson in the book of Judges, we see that pattern repeating itself in Samson's life. Today's scripture reading that Joanna shared with us a little bit earlier is a prime example of that. Apparently, at one point, Samson decided to take a Philistine wife, but it turns out they had a tempestuous relationship. Judges 15 verse 1 tells us, after a while, Samson went to visit his wife, still living in Philistine territory. He said to her father, I want to go into my wife's room. But her father would not allow him to go in. Her father said, I was sure that you had rejected her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not your younger sister prettier than she? Why not take her instead? Samson was not amused. You did what? You gave my wife to somebody else? I should have known better than to get involved with these Philistines. And he vowed revenge. Samson went out and captured 300 foxes, tied their tails together, tied Torches between the tails lit the torches and sent the foxes running through the fields of the Philistines, setting their crops on fire. Who does that? I mean, can you imagine? The Philistines, of course, are filled with rage. And so they, in retaliation, go to the home of his Philistine father-in-law and his Philistine wife, and they burn the house with them in it. In turn, Samson then retaliates by slaughtering Dozens of Philistines and back and forth this senseless cycle of rage and revenge goes throughout the book of Judges until finally to make a long story short, the Philistines capture Samson. They tie him between the two great pillars of one of their temples and they proceed to mock him. Samson summons every ounce of strength left in him and tugs against those pillars until the pillars collapse and the roof of the temple comes down on top of them, killing hundreds of Philistines and killing Samson himself. He had so much to live for. He was such a gift to the Israelites. But because he wasn't able to deal with his personal issues, they ended up ultimately undoing him. And now the story of Samson waves before us like a, a red flag of warning, reminding us that no matter how gifted we are, if we don't deal with our personal issues, they will keep holding us back. They will keep bringing great pain into our life. And they could ultimately undo us. We all have our flaws. It's easy to see the flaws in other people, right? Much harder to see them in ourselves. You may be sitting here today thinking, I hope so-and-so is listening to what Jeff says. I'm sure Pastor Bambi is probably thinking, I hope Pastor David is listening to this. <laughs> and Pastor David is probably thinking, I hope Jeff is listening to what he's saying. And I'm up here thinking, I hope Pastor Tandy is listening to this. And Pastor Tandy's thinking, I hope Pastor Bambi's listening to this. And Carissa's sitting in the back thinking, I hope they're all hearing this because they're all a mess. 
which would be true. Every pastor of the church, self-included, has personal issues. Every member of this congregation has personal issues. It's much easier for me to see your issues than it is for me to see mine. Years ago, a volunteer here at the church was cleaning in the um, office area of the church. So at one point, Tom came into my office. He vacuumed, he emptied the trash, he dusted a little bit. And when he was wrapping up, he said, hey, Jeff, would it be okay if I put some air fresheners around? I said, sure, thinking he meant in places like the restrooms, you know, and stuff like that. But that's not what he meant. He was talking about my office. <laughs> he said to me, and these were his exact words. He said, they're burned in my memory. He said to me, I think I need to put some around here, he said. And he said, I hope this won't offend you, but well, your office is starting to smell like dogs. Because you see, on weekdays, I bring my dogs to the church with me and they sleep under my desk. But I am so used to the smell of my dogs that I was completely oblivious that my office was starting to smell like a dog kennel. Have you ever noticed when you walk into someone's home that their home has a unique scent to it? Every home you walk into will have a unique scent. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, depending on what they've been cooking and what cleaning products they use and whether they have pets and what kind of pets. Every home you ever walk into will have its own certain unique scent except your own. Right? When you walk into your house, you think, nothing here. Because the smell of your house has become so familiar to you that you're oblivious to it. It's just normal, right? Our flaws, our personal issues are like that. They become so much a part of us that we can't smell them. We can be stinking up the place. And we can't, we're oblivious to it. It's also difficult to see our personal issues because to do so is painful. True story. A therapist tells how she was working with a client who had come to her with anger management issues. He would have these eruptions of anger that were starting to affect his career and his family. In one of their early sessions, the therapist says she wanted to help him to try to imagine how much better his life would be without his out-of-control anger. So she said to him, tell me what your life would look like if you got rid of your anger. She says he thought for a second, and then he said to her, if I got rid of my anger, what would I have left? You see, his anger had become so deeply rooted in him as a coping mechanism. It was how he was surviving. Or the same way, our personal issues can root themselves so deeply in us that uprooting them would would feel to us like an existential threat, like cutting off our arm. Because that, that dysfunction within us is something that, that we've latched onto that somehow in its own dysfunctional way is helping us cope 
with our issues. So it's very easy, very easy to engage in avoidance and denial. But here's the thing. God loves you and me too much to let us live in denial. So God will keep putting you and me in situations that highlight our personal issue, that bring us face to face with our personal issue, not to torment us, but in hopes that we'll finally see it and start to deal with it. We see that pattern in Samson's story too. In every chapter of Samson's story, God is putting Samson in another situation where his anger is provoked. Not to torment or punish Samson, but because no doubt God was hoping that maybe this time Samson will realize that my anger is destroying my life and destroying the life of my people and maybe I finally need to deal with it. It's the same with us. God's going to keep bringing us back to our issue time and time again, hoping that maybe this time we'll deal with it. One of my issues, one of my big personal issues is I am a conflict avoider. I hate conflict. And so I find that God is rather routinely thrusting me into situations that challenge me to deal with conflict in a more forthright and courageous manner. It is painful, but I need it. We all do. So, when you and I finally reach that point in our life where we're willing to face our stuff, where we're willing to take a look at and acknowledge our deepest personal issue, when we finally get to that place, what's the solution to the problem? Today I want to share with you two great biblical principles that I think can help us. First, seeing your personal issue as a problem is itself part of the problem. What if instead of seeing your personal issue as a problem, you instead saw it as an opportunity? Let me explain what I mean. In the early chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's <clears throat> first New Testament letter to the Corinthian Christians, Paul challenges the Corinthians, says to them that they're being way too judgmental of one another. And in the context of that conversation, Paul ends up making a statement that I find fascinating. It's a simple, brief statement that we could easily gloss over. But it strikes me as being a profound insight and life principle. When talking to the Corinthians about their judgmentalism toward one another, Paul makes this statement, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says to them, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? What does that mean? Suppose you find yourself being judgmental of someone who has an anger management issue. Now, we have many, many personal issues, but since that was Samson's issue, let's, let's use that as an example. Suppose you find yourself being judgmental of someone else who has an anger management issue, and you find yourself thinking, what is wrong with them? 
Why do they have to be that way? I have anger too, but I've learned to deal with my anger. Why can't they? The answer, according to Paul, is because they haven't been given the same gifts of anger management that you have. Something has or hasn't happened in their life that made them that way. Now, that doesn't excuse them. That doesn't mean they shouldn't work on it. But the fact remains, they are the way they are because of what's happened to them, their cumulative life experience, nature, nurture, and life experience. By the same token, if you are good at anger management, that's because God gave you that gift. Now, you might say, Jeff, I have a temper, but I worked hard to learn to control my anger. I earned my anger management stripes. Hmm, maybe. But think about it this way. Where did you get the insight that you needed to deal with that? And where did you find the discipline to work on it? Because you see, those things were given to you as well through some combination of nurture, nature, and life experience. So what Paul's saying is true. In one sense, you can trace everything in life back to it's a given. It's a gift. And the converse of that is also true. So instead of being puffed up that I can manage my anger, why can't they? Instead of blaming the other person, recognize that you've been given the gift, and they haven't. And their struggle with anger, it's their cross to bear. And if everything has been given to us, and if God has given them that cross to bear, that means God gave them that, that weakness. Why? Why would God give someone that cross to bear? The answer is so that they can grow their soul. There's nothing that grows the soul faster and better than when we find ourselves in a situation of hardship and push through it and come out the other side stronger and wiser and more beautiful. And after all, that is the primary reason why we've been put here on earth, to grow our souls for this life and the life to come. Ronald uh, Rollhauser puts it this way, crises of every kind will find us. But these crises enter our lives not just as challenges to us to retain our balance and stability, but as invitations to stretch our hearts and minds. Every crisis includes within it an invitation for us to move from being good people to becoming great people. So, what would happen if instead of viewing your great personal weakness as a problem, you viewed it instead as an opportunity to grow? Your greatest opportunity in life to grow your soul. Think about it like this. Suppose one day you walk into the Humane Society looking to adopt a dog. And as you're walking down the aisle with the, the cages of the dogs on either side, at one point the, uh, the attendant points to a dog in a cage, cage and says, that dog has issues. And you say, can I see that dog? Sure, the attendant says, opens up the cage door, lets you in. 
As soon as you enter that cage, that dog retreats to the back corner of the cage, cowers, and shivers. How do you respond? Do you say, what's wrong with you? Why are you acting that way? No. Because intuitively you understand that dog is the way she is because of something that happened to her. So how do you respond? You sit down at the opposite end of the cage in a corner and you make yourself really small. And you just sit there for a while until she finally stops shivering. And when she does, ever so slowly, you pull a kibble out of your pocket and roll it across the floor toward her. At first, she's too unnerved to eat it. So you wait five minutes, completely still, and finally she summons the courage to lean forward and eat that kibble. Mmm, pretty good. Slowly, slowly, you take another kibble out of your pocket, roll it across the floor, not as far this time, so that to get it, she's got to get up and move a little closer. Eventually, she does. <clears throat> then another kibble and another, each one stopping closer to you until 30 minutes later, she'll eat a kibble out of your hand. You're starting to make a friend. And if you wait long enough, eventually, she'll lay down near you and ever so tentatively rest her nose on your knee. She's starting to trust you now. Grace. Unconditional love. You could have come into that cage and raged at her. I hate the way you're acting. What's wrong with you? Why are you that way? That only makes the problem worse. Instead, instinctively, you understand she's the way she is for a reason because that's, that's what's happened to her in her life. And my job is not to judge her. My job is to try to heal her. That wounded part of you is like that puppy dog. You can respond to that wounded part of you by saying, why am I that way? I wish I wasn't that way. I hate that part of myself, but that does no good. What if instead you said, my job is to embrace that wounded part of myself. My job is to try to heal that wounded part, to show unconditional love to that part of myself. Embracing it, not as the enemy, but as my life's greatest opportunity to grow. Because if by God's grace and with God's help, I can push through this, I'm going to come out on the other side far wiser, stronger, and more beautiful for the rest of this life and for all of eternity. My personal weakness, I love you. I embrace you. Years ago, um, one of the leaders, one of the young leaders in the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa was Reverend Alan Boussac. He was mentored by Nelson Mandela and other great leaders of the anti-apartheid movement. He, Boussac, once famously said, when we, our life here ends and we appear before Jesus, Boussac said, I believe the first statement Jesus will make to us each one of us is, show me your wounds. 
As we know, Jesus was grievously wounded on the cross. So Buzak says, I believe when we appear before Jesus and he's evaluating our lives, the first thing he's going to say to each one of us is, show me your wounds. And Buzak says, if we say, I have no wounds, Jesus will say to us, was there nothing worth fighting for? Now, Buzak said that in the context of social justice and all the injustice in the world, and how we should care enough about a hurting world that we take risks, even the risk of being wounded, in order to make a difference. But it seems to me that his, his perspective can also be powerfully applied to what we are talking about today, our greatest personal wounds. Someday, when you and I appear before Jesus, perhaps the first thing Jesus will say to us is, show me your wounds and tell me how you responded to those wounds. And if we say, I didn't respond. I just let them fester. Jesus will look us in the eye and say, was your life not worth fighting for? We all have wounds. They're there not to be neglected or hated or resented. They're there to be embraced, healed. Our greatest chance to overcome, to grow our soul and make it far more beautiful. Which brings us to the other great biblical principle I want to share with us. This second principle comes from Jesus himself. And one of his parables that he tells in Luke chapter 12 to help us better understand how he, Jesus, will judge us when we stand before him. And at the end of that parable, Jesus sums up what he's trying to teach us in Luke 12, 48. There Jesus says, to whom much is given, of them shall much be required. So, if, for example, you are someone who's been given the gift of excellent anger management. When you manage your anger well, you're just doing what's easy. You're not going to get any special credit for that. You're just doing what Jesus expected of you because you were given that gift. But if this principle is true, the converse is also true. If to whom much is given, of them much is required expected then to whom less is given of them less is required do you see the significance of that so if I have not been given the gift of anger management Jesus is not going to judge me by comparing me to you if I'm a one on the anger management scale and you're a ten when I stand before Jesus he's not going to say why weren't you like them and that's what discourages us. We see where we are in the area we're weak. We see somebody strong in that area, and we say, I can never do that. And so we give up. It's overwhelming. But that's not what Jesus expects of you or wants from you. Jesus isn't going to measure you by somebody who's really good in an area you're really weak. Jesus is going to measure you against yourself and from where you started and how far you come. So if I'm low on the anger management scale, if I'm a one on the anger management scale, but I say in 2023, I'm going to work on that. And I'm going to see if I can make some progress. And by the end of the year, I'm a three. 
Jesus is going to say, wow, you have made progress. Look how far you've come. He's not going to say, why can't you be like that other person? And if the next year I get up to a four or five, Jesus is going to say, look at you. I'm really proud of you. You've taken the little you had, and look how much you're making of it. Well done, good and faithful servant. So that at the end of the age, when you and I are judged, it's not going to be on this absolute scale. It's not going to be like school where we're being compared to and graded on everybody else. Jesus is going to look at what we were given and what we did with it. What we weren't given and what we did with that and how far we came in it. So maybe this year, let's say, you made a New Year's resolution that you're going to get back in good physical condition. I know some in our congregation have done that. In fact, somebody who's made that resolution in our congregation, uh, the other day I, I said to her, how's it going? She said, I was back to the gym for the first time this week in 20 years. I said, good for you. How'd it go? It went great, she said. I did 15 minutes of cardio, then five minutes on the defibrillator, then three days in the hospital. <laughs> if you've been out of shape for 20 years and you go back to the gym, God is not going to measure you against LeBron James because LeBron James has been given exceptional physical gifts and talents. And if you are measuring yourself against LeBron James, you're never, you're going to give up before you get started. Because in your mind, it's all or nothing, but that's not how God sees it. If you haven't been in shape for 20 years, and you go back to the gym, and you start working on it, and by the end of six months, you can run a quarter mile, Jesus is going to say, look at you. Good for you. You're taking what little you had, and you're making more. Intuitively, we understand this when we look at Special Olympic athletes. When a Special Olympic athlete runs 100 meters in 15 seconds on prosthetic legs, we don't say, what's wrong with you? Why can't you run it in 9.58 seconds like Usain Bolt does? No. In fact, we're probably far more impressed with the Olympic, Special Olympic athlete running on prosthetics in 15 seconds than with Usain Bolt running it in 9.58 seconds because he has been given so much. But that special athlete has taken what little they had and they're making something amazing of it. That's how Jesus sees us and how Jesus is going to evaluate us. So, let me summarize these two principles that we're looking at today. Number one, love the wounded part of you. Instead of seeing it as a problem, see it as an opportunity to grow wiser, stronger, and more beautiful. And number two, don't measure your progress against somebody else. Measure yourself against where you started and keep making incremental progress. Baby steps, a little at a time, Nobody changes in one fell swoop. It is a process that we have to stay with. So my challenge for us this week is that we go home and that we sit down and that we take some time to prayerfully write down several of your greatest personal challenges. Try to be as brutally honest with yourself as you can. Try to see yourself through the eyes of your spouse 
What would my spouse say are my greatest personal challenges? Or they, the eyes of your best, honest friend. What would they say? Write down several of your greatest personal challenges. Then prayerfully select the one that strikes you as the most important and defer the others. Because if we try to solve everything at once, we're going to get overwhelmed. We're not. So pick one, the one that you think is the right starting point. Then write down a simple, a simple measurable, realistic, incremental goal for yourself. Don't say, I'm going to become LeBron James this year. Pick a realistic, incremental measurable goal that will represent some meaningful progress and then identify several simple specific things you're going to do to try to reach that goal and then implement the plan you can do this I can do this let's don't give up after all we've been put here to grow <laughs> let me close with this Years ago, when I was still a lawyer, I led uh, a division of about 20 attorneys uh, in a, a unit of the United States Department of Treasury, and we worked, on, uh, we worked with Congress on issues related to savings banks and savings and loan associations. One of the attorneys in my division, let's call her Gail, was a brilliant attorney who did good work, but Gail had a problem. Her problem was how she presented herself. When you walked into her office, it was a disaster. I mean, it was like a hoarder's office. Papers, stacks of papers, on the floor, on every surface, even last week's lunch wrapper, it was just all, I mean, it was just a, like walking into a, a trash room. <laughs> Not just that, but Gail every day wore the same thing, the identical thing, and you could tell her personal hygiene wasn't so good. You could pick up the scent. So I'm thinking to myself, as her supervisor, should I say something? I mean, I don't want to hurt her. I mean, can you imagine how painful it would be if your supervisor talked to you about this? So I went to my boss, the chief counsel, and asked her, what do you think I should do? <laughs> she said, Jeff, I think you need to talk to her, which is not what I wanted to hear as a conflict avoider. But God keeps putting us into So I prayed about it. I summoned my courage. I walked into her office. I cleared a space where I could sit down. <laughs> and I said, Gail, there's something I need to say that's going to be hard to hear. What is it? she said. I said, you have incredible potential. You are brilliant. The sky's the limit for you. But you've got a presentation issue. The way you keep your office and wearing the same thing every day. and You kind of let yourself go. She put her head down. There were some tears. And she said, I know. She said, I've been depressed lately. And I've just let everything go. But I'm seeing the therapist now. She said, I can do better. Two weeks later, 
the chief counsel, came into my office, closed the door, big smile on her face, and said, did you see Gail's office? <laughs> she cleaned it up. And did you see what she's wearing? The chief counsel, the chief counsel was impec an impeccable dresser. She was the height of fashion, right? The chief counsel said what Gail was wearing. She said, it's not flashy or anything, but it's professional. I said, yeah. She's making progress. To make a long story short, a year later when I resigned to become a pastor, guess who the chief counsel selected to lead our division? Gail. Because she was able to face her issues, as painful as it was, and courageously deal with them, she was finally living more fully into God's dream for her life, taking the gifts she did have and releasing them into her life. Gail is an encouragement to us that we can do this. You can do it. I can do it. Let's don't give up. Your greatest personal problem is your greatest personal opportunity to grow your soul, and that's all God expects of us, that we just keep growing little by little, incrementally, baby steps seizing and making the most of the gift of life that God has given us. Let's do this. Amen.